Hartford Evening Press, April 16th, 1865. The president is assassinated. Men's hearts are in their throats as they speak of it. A national calamity. Is it a national judgment? The man whom the nation loves as a father is killed by a hired assassin of the rebel leaders. Those leaders whom Lincoln many thought was about to take to his bosom in fraternal embrace. The nation stands aghast at the enormity of the deed. It bows with tears and universal lamentations over the grave of our loved president. Today there is nothing but sorrow, but tomorrow will come the stern duties of the hour. For with our grief mingles a deeper feeling, one hitherto a stranger to the breasts of northern men. Hereafter justice, justice to the national parasites. All right. That was uh, Jackson Zinn Rothorn. Uh, he is one of uh, four young actors who are here with us today uh, to help bring alive the events uh, of 150 years ago, the assassination of President Abraham Lincoln. With us today also, Matt Warshower, president of history at Central Connecticut State University uh, and co-chair of the Connecticut Civil War Commemoration Commission. Uh, he, in fact, is involved tonight at the Hoffman Auditorium at the University of St. Joseph in West Hartford uh, with the, this program, Assassination, the Story of of a president's murder and a nation's heartbreak. We're just giving you a little taste of it here today. That's at 7.30. We'll have more information for you about that on our site, wnpr.org. Also with us, Ron Spencer, lecturer in history and associate academic dean emeritus at Trinity College, the editor of A Connecticut Yankee, no, the author of A Connecticut Yankee in Lincoln's cabinet, Navy Secretary Gideon Wells Chronicles the Civil War. Are you the editor or the author of it? What's the right way to say? Editor. editor right. So, um, Ron, I'm going to begin with you just because I I just I noticed that we we wound up through no act of conscious planning leading up off with the Hartford Evening Press. The Hartford Evening Press actually would have been uh, the uh, he wasn't wouldn't have been there at that moment, but it, it was uh, one of the earlier jobs of Gideon Wells. Right, he left the Hartford Current because it's. Nativism at that particular moment was a little bit too despicable well, for him. Actually, I'm I'm not sure at that point he he really had a, an involvement with the current. He of okay. course continued to be involved with the Times until mm-hmm. the mid 50s, and then in 56 when he helped found the Republican Party in the state. One of the things that came with that was founding the Evening Press, and he declined being editor of it. But he made all the arrangements, set it up, and did some of the early editorials before some other people came in, like. Uh, um, um, particularly Hawley and, and uh, Mark Howard and so forth, to take over running the thing. I want to ask both of our historians about this. Uh, by the way, we're live here in the afternoon if you're a Lincoln assassination buff, and there are such people. Uh, you want to, you can call in 860 275 I want to ask both of you. I'll start with you, Matt. So one of the things we hear in this, you know, this is sort of breaking news, uh, so as breaking news, they've, they've constructed a narrative there in the Hartford Evening Press. And I'm, I, I looked at headlines all over the place uh, and, and early coverage all over the place before we went on the show today. Predictably, you know, that a lot of assumptions were made. So the assumption is made here that, the, um, that he has been killed basically by, uh, by the, he, the people that he was prepared to take to his bosom, that, that this is some kind of of push from the Confederacy, or how widespread was that suspicion? Uh, it's it's hugely widespread. Uh, it's in newspapers, uh, and of course, you know, newspapers then, like today, they uh, you know, sort of associated press like they repeat things over and over again, and they publish stories from other places. But 
that obviously gets into the consciousness of, of the average person because we have letters and diaries and we especially in tonight in the show will have a couple of soldiers who actually discuss this in their letters home where they all say uh, they have killed the mildest of their foes, that Lincoln was going to be on their side. And, you know, I'm sure as we get into the show, we'll talk about it a little bit about, you know, what my, I always get this question at talks, what might have happened had Lincoln lived? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, no, we can't say exactly what would happen, but we could have some pretty educated ideas. Certainly it wouldn't have been as problematic as it was under Andrew Johnson. Um, we'll, and we'll come to that. I, I do want to talk about that. But, um, Ron, as this uh, happens... Uh, people, uh, close advisors of Lincoln do gather at his bedside, and one of them is your guy, Gideon Wells, the Secretary of the Navy. What what does Wells, or for that matter, anybody else, as they're waiting through the night with this you know, gravely uh, injured president, what do they think is happening? I mean, do, do they think maybe this is some pushback from the Confederacy? Well, I think it varied from person to person. Uh, when the government really committed itself to believing that Confederate leadership had a hand in this Uh, came at the end of April when the cabinet discussed and authorized issuance of a a rewards poster for Jefferson Davis and Clement C. Clay and uh, Jacob Thompson, various Confederate agents in Canada, sometimes called Davis's Canadian cabinet. And Wells was a little bit hesitant, but he said, I don't have any facts. And if the uh, Secretary of War and the head of the Bureau of, of Military Justice are sure they were involved. I have no objection. Um, Matt, what it was, I mean, it was a very, very small conspiracy. I mean, uh, John Wilkes Booth had Confederates. And in fact, a kind of a spur of the moment thing that day, as far as we can tell. And it wasn't just Lincoln, right? There was an attack on Seward. There was an, uh, a, a, a planned uh, but averted by drunkenness attack on Johnson. How many things have been averted by drunkenness, Colin? Right. Uh, no, that's absolutely true. And I think it's one of the things that many Americans forget. You know, the Lincoln's assassination and the name of John Wilkes Booth, you know, even for those people who don't know anything about history and are not interested in history, they know those names. They know at least a brief amount about that history. But hardly any of them know about the attack on Secretary of State uh, William Henry Seward, which was really, truly a brutal, brutal attack. Uh, And it's amazing that he survived it. There were newspapers that uh, did report that it had been successful, too. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, And then there was another guy who was supposed to kill uh, Andrew Johnson, and he literally went and got drunk and kind of talked himself out of it. Yeah, I think what he did is uh, that was George Atzerod. He goes and he, he knocks on Johnson's door. And nobody answers it immediately, and he runs off. Um, I want to talk just a little bit, little bit about how. I mean, this is such a such a fraught time, but but how Ron in the North um, Lincoln would have been regarded. You know, we know from from Matt's book about Connecticut during the Civil War. Connecticut was like any place, I guess, but maybe even a little bit worse than some other places. Not completely united around the idea of abolition, and therefore not completely united around the idea of the Civil War. Um, Twenty four hours before Lincoln's death, how? How in the northern states was he regarded? Was, he, was, was it just sort of adulation now that the war was over? Well, no, I don't think so. I mean, he only got 55 and a fraction percent of the popular vote the preceding November for re-election. So that indicated there were a lot of people who yeah, were not he, keen on him. Even lower in Connecticut. And even lower in Connecticut, yeah. which, which actually had one of the strongest copperhead factions of any of the uh, northern states. Not quite as much as you find in the Midwest, but certainly stronger than you find anywhere else in the Northeast. And, uh, you know, there, there were uh, 
mean, who knows? We don't have public opinion polls and so forth. But it seems to me that there were lots of Democrats who at least were appalled that, that a president had been shot and killed. But I don't think uh, if, if there had been a, a, a poll the day before, he would have probably had about 55 people, percent of the people saying great and the others somewhere from indifference, indifferent to openly hostile. All right. I think that's a little bit lower than a lot of people would have guessed. Um, but it, we sort of, you know, we've kind of uh, unified sentiment in our minds about this. Yeah, no, that's very true. We yeah. we forget. We, you know, yeah. because of the, I, part of, partially because Lincoln was assassinated and he becomes this martyr figure, later generations just assume, oh, well, Lincoln was always a beloved figure. And I think it was Time Magazine um, you know, maybe about three years ago, did a poll of Americans and found out that uh, 94% of Americans have a, a, a positive view of Lincoln. And there's just absolutely no way that he would have had that kind of approval in, in, in the, the mid or late 1860s. Just a footnote, it suggests, you know, during the election, now this, to be sure, before the war was over, there were at least two Copperhead newspapers in the Midwest that suggested that should he win re-election, they hoped he would find his Brutus, that is, that he would be assassinated. And nothing was done to shut down those papers or to jail the editors. But that's – the very fact that that could appear in respectable newspapers, weeklies to be sure, mm-hmm. is very suggestive that there was a lot of hostility to the man very yeah. close to the time he was killed. And then <clears throat> in southern newspapers, I mean, there were well, southern newspapers matter. that greeted the news of the assassination with, with jubilation. Sure. Yeah. Um, the, um, I want to talk a little bit about Booth. I mean, the weirdness of John Wilkes Booth. I mean, first of all, Matt, this is, I mean, he was a really famous actor. This is like having, you know, Bruce Willis or Tom Hanks or something assassinate the president, right? I mean, he was like yeah. one of the most famous actors of his day. Absolutely. He is arguably the most famous actor of his day. Uh, he comes from an acting family. Uh, his brother, Edwin uh, Booth, was also a very well-known actor. And by the time the Civil War has occurred, Booth is traveling throughout uh, the entirety of the United States uh, doing shows. And he's a headliner and uh, he's he's making what today's uh, money would be about a half a million dollars, which is a nice little tidy sum. But uh, he's really, really well known. And, and I, I was looking, uh, doing a little research this morning before I came in, and one Civil War reporter, George Alfred Townsend, described Booth as a muscular, perfect man with curling hair like a Corinthian capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, as we're talking about this, uh, Ben uh, Astrogan, maybe you can uh, head on up to the microphone. I'll give you a cue when it's time. But uh, we're, we'll hear uh, from Ben the voice uh, of John Wilkes Booth in just a second here. And, and, but the other part of this was, Matt, that – I mean and, and there's a, um, an interesting biography coming out right now by Tyler Alford um, uh, about Booth. Uh, there have been other you – know, actually, there was one called American Brutus actually. Yeah, uh, yeah Michael Kaufman's book. To, to Ron's point. But um, one thing that Alfred really suggests was he was kind of going crazy. I mean, you know, like starting to say things that weren't true, starting to – he among other – he was apparently obsessed with John Brown, which is kind of weird because John oh, Brown – He was at John Brown's hanging. He was at, Yeah. But he, he started to claim that he had been part of this military unit that had gone to the hanging. And then according to Alfred, he started to tell people that he participated in the hanging. Uh, I mean, he was sort of – he'd sort of gotten into that thing where he'd, he's, he thought that he had done things that he had not actually done. So this is a guy who's kind of deteriorating a little bit. Uh, maybe his acting career is deteriorating a little bit during the American Civil War too. And so, you know, it, it is a little bit like what people say about Oswald, right? How could this guy, this guy who's, you know, I mean, 
you know, he's, yeah, he's a really famous actor, but that's all he is. How could this guy have been able to assassinate the president of the United States? Yeah, but I, I don't want to leave the impression to the listeners that that Booth was, you know, really going off the rails and that he was crazy. He was uh, he was indignant. He was self-righteous. He absolutely believed in the conviction of what he was doing. And I think when you get to uh, the last uh, six to nine months of the war, there are a lot of Southerners or Southern sympathizers like Booth who are at their wits end because they see the the finality of, of the war coming and they know that they're going to lose. So it's not just Booth. I mean, you've got to remember that this struggle is like none other in the nation's history. How many people have been killed? How many people have been wounded? How much the South has been torn up? And, you know, I'm fond of of quoting uh, an historian, uh, John Niven, who wrote a book about uh, called Connecticut for the Union, in which uh, he really gets to the point of how much even a little state like ours is connected to this. He says simply, from the firing on Fort Sumter to the peace at Appomattox, Connecticut looked like an armed camp. And so when all that's going on, you know, people are going to react at this end. Um, Let's hear – we can't uh, give you the voice of John Wilkes Booth, but we'll give you the next best thing. Here's Ben Astrakhan reading. I think you have a letter to read? Yes, I do. Okay, okay. A letter given to my brother-in-law, John S. Clark, November 1864. To whom it may concern, right or wrong – God judge me, not man. For be my motive, good or bad, of one thing I am sure, the lasting condemnation of the North. I love peace more than life, have loved the Union beyond expression. For four years I have waited, hoped, and prayed for the dark clouds to break and for a restoration of our former sunshine. To wait longer would be a crime. All hope for peace is dead. God's will be done. I go to see and share the bitter end. I have ever held the South will right. The very nomination of Abraham Lincoln four years ago spoke plainly war. War upon Southern rights and institutions. His election proved it. Await an overt act. Yes, till you are bound and plundered. What folly. The South was wise. Who thinks of argument or patience when the finger of his enemy presses on the trigger? People of the North, to hate tyranny, to love liberty and justice, to strike at wrong and oppression, was the teaching of our fathers. All right. That's Ben Astrakhan uh, reading the words of John Wilkes Booth. So um, uh, when this happens – oh, actually, you know, there's actually a freaky detail in the new Alfred book, which is that uh, uh, supposedly – he claims anyway that as, as Booth was wandering around Washington, sort of casing things out and – and thinking these things out, uh, he actually uh, was at the Peterson House across from the Ford Theater and and laid or lazed uh, on the bed. Yeah, that, isn't uh, that crazy? That's very. There's so many little strange connections and and happenings during this time period. Now, um, Ron, one of the things that happened um, right after the assassination too, and I spent a lot of – I got hooked on them this morning. I started looking at them. Where there were a lot of um, engravings uh, or prints uh, of the deathbed scene and this was sort of kind of a common trope or motif in American life anyway. Uh, so and, – and, and everybody kind of upped their turnaround time. Courier and Ives had prints out you know, within 11 days, which is like – you know. 
in 10 minutes basically by today's time. Um, and actually, there I, I didn't realize this, but their big competition was in Hartford, the Kellogg brothers. Yeah, the Kellogg brothers, yeah, the Kellogg brothers right. also had prints out. So one of the things these deathbed scenes showed over and over again was this uh, cluster of very uh, sober-looking men, for the most part men of the cabinet around him. And one of them is uh, your guy, Gideon Wells. So uh, tell us uh, – I should I I should lay my cards on the table. Uh, my name actually is Colin Wells McEnroe. I am sort of descended from Gideon Wells, but um, but it's something I've uh, endeavored to cover up. Uh, so, but the, the uh, truth becomes known, yeah, Colin. I just don't want to have any sort of. Well, never mind. Uh, I like being <laughs> Irish American. I don't like you know, I don't like being from good stock or anything like that. So. Um, um, uh, so, but so, Ron, t- tell us about th- this. Is a special relationship. I mean, uh, there were a lot of men there, but few of them probably were as personally close to Lincoln as Wells. Yeah, and and you know, probably more pen- more men were pictured as being there than yes. actually were. It was a very yeah. small room. That's right. And, and his son is pictured as being there. Right. Uh, Lincoln's yes. son Tad, and he's not yeah, there. And he's certainly not there. Um, I think that uh, you know Wells had had certainly grown close to Lincoln, had great respect for him. I think Lincoln liked him. Uh, their wives were particularly close. Uh, Mrs. Wells was one of the three women who was summoned after the assassination to attend Mrs. Lincoln at the White House and so forth. Um, what, what's striking about Wells's account of what went on in the room is, one, you know, he was a journalist in part by profession, and he, he writes with a kind of an, somewhat unemotional kind of stuff. He, when he first enters the room, a doctor tells him that uh, the president is dead for all intents, but may hang on for another two or three or four hours. And he sort of notes that down. But then he gets very personal. It's, it's sort of like modern personal journalism where he talks about how the, the president's body is heaving under the covers and that his face has never looked so good to Wells before for the first hour that I'm there. But then uh, one of his eyes <coughs> – excuse me – one of his eyes begins to swell and his bloodshot and so forth. So he, he's a very close observer of things and continues to be a very close observer in his account of both of what went on in the room. You know, he, he talks about uh, as the death struggle begins that uh, Mrs. Lincoln makes her final visit to her husband and then uh, Robert, his elder son, is there and at one point he sobs and leans on the shoulder of Senator Sumner who's there and then he suddenly says and at 7.22 a.m. his breathing stopped and so it kind of goes from this very personal kind of observation to the very fact-like Journalistic, in the best sense of the word, reporting. Um, the uh, there there are, as you said, Matt, other people depicted on be, being in the room, but probably weren't there. Or there, I saw this one very disturbing uh, German print that uh, that shows Andrew Johnson, who, as we know, was kind of there and then ran back out and went off and did other things. Andrew Johnson did not spend the night on the death watch, but in this print, he's sitting there, but kind of looking away from Lincoln, looking off in this very detached way, uh, and, and you know. God knows what Andrew Johnson was thinking at that point. But anyway, we can come to that in a second. But one of the things that happens after the death is, and I had not known this until today, Lincoln's body is kind of taken on tour, you know? I oh, mean, yeah. And, and to far and wide in an age where embalming and, and mortician's arts were not anywhere near as sophisticated as they are today. But yeah, that's exactly right. And I'm actually glad that you brought up the, the images because one of the things that we're going to do at the show tonight, we have a particular section of the show that uh, presents 80 images that are related to a lot of the, the deathbed scene images that are there, the lithographs. Uh, there's a, and, and so much of this is in the Library of Congress, these images, and they're really good quality and very accessible to the public. Uh, but we also have what you're referring to as the Lincoln funeral train. 
and they decide that they are going to carry Lincoln's body back to Springfield. Uh, some uh, of the cabinet members wanted Lincoln to be buried uh, in, uh, in the, the floor of the Capitol Rotunda. But uh, Mrs. Lincoln says, no, 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 he, he has to go back uh, to his home, to Springfield, Illinois. And so they take him on a tour and they travel through a, a bunch of different cities. And in each of these, it goes from uh, Harrisburg, Philadelphia, Trenton, New Jersey, New York, Albany, Buffalo, Cleveland, Columbus, Ohio, Cincinnati, Indianapolis, and then it goes to Springfield. And so uh, at each of these places, uh, there are people standing along the rail lines uh, with basically doing a candlelight vigil. And Lincoln's body is taken off uh, each of these, and there are processions in the streets. They are usually, Lincoln's body is usually placed in the Capitol building of that city, and people come and pay their respects. Um, we're going to take a break here. We're going to come back with more of these uh, young actors. They're all from uh, Hall High School in West Hartford. I have not said that so far. Uh, more of Ron Spencer, more of Matt Warshower when we come back. Ron's going to tell us a little bit more about international reaction uh, to the death as well. And we'll be hearing, as I say, some more acting from tonight's program. He set the people thinking He wouldn't lie to you And he wouldn't lie to me There was trouble, he was tried But the Lord was by his side The tall American was a man of destiny It's 7.22 in the morning Saturday the 15th of April It's all over The president is no more He belongs to the ages. That, of course, is from Steven Spielberg's Lincoln. We're uh, talking about the fact that 150 years ago, uh, President Lincoln was assassinated, the first presidential assassination in, in American history. Um, you'll be hearing as we go on here uh, tonight and uh, today, excuse me, some voices from tonight. Uh, tonight uh, at the uh, University of St. Joseph Hoffman Auditorium in West Hartford, assassination, the story of a president's murder and a nation's heartbreak. Uh, that's tonight at 7.30. For more information about um, how to get to that, uh, you can go to our website, wnpr.com. I think it's right up there on the right-hand side of the front page. Uh, I hope I do not misspeak myself. Uh, before we get to more of that, uh, we have two historians with us as well, Matt Warshower, who's involved in tonight's event, uh, and uh, Ron Spencer, uh, who is the editor of the uh, Connecticut Yankee in Lincoln's cabinet, Navy Secretary Gideon Wells', Wells Chronicles, the Civil War. So, um, Ron, one thing I just want to sort of build on what Matt's thought was, Matt was talking about with the, the trip of Lincoln's body and the, the, the aftermath of the assassination. Um, one thing that I don't know very much about is how this was looked upon by the rest of the world. Was the, what was the international response like? Well, it, it was really quite, quite extraordinary. Uh, all kinds of condolences, expressions of, of sympathy, tributes poured in. Uh, now, some were fairly pro forma coming from governments. But interestingly enough, not just from the usual suspects like the British and French government, for example, but also from the Chinese uh, royal court, uh, and uh, from, a, uh, from, from uh, uh, Japan, uh, from a number of South American nations and so forth. But what's really interesting is that there were literally hundreds of local groups, some of them churches, some of them uh, working men's organizations, sometimes Masonic lodges. There are about 40 Masonic lodges in France that sent tributes, for example. And, and a reason for a lot of this was that... It, on the continent in particular, 
the hopes for Republican government with a small r, for democracy with a small d, had faded badly after the failure of the revolutions of 1848. And America was looked to in some sense as an example of what was possible. But as Lincoln himself recognized in an early speech uh, after his inauguration, if the United States failed to hold itself together, it would prove what the aristocrats of Europe had said for centuries, that Republican governments were unstable and invariably failed. And after the North won, after the Union was won, and Lincoln um, um, uh, was assassinated, all kinds of tributes pour in, not only to console Mrs. Lincoln and so forth, and a lot of them were sent to her, but to, to note what this meant world historically. And I, if I can quote just one example, and this is from the Democratic Republican Society of Florence, Italy. The democracy of Europe owes to the American people an eternal debt of gratitude for preserving intact and pure their great republic, from the model of which the nations of the old world may yet be formed anew. You know, and, and you know, we're going to be talking in just a second, Ron, about um – what might have happened or how different things uh, might have been. But, you know, it's probably worth noting that th- th- here this democracy does come through the darkest moment of its history uh, in both – in two ways, the, the Civil War and then the assassination of a president and, and the ascension of a president who I think most people would agree was vastly inferior to the one who had been lost. The fact that the country kind of comes through this – I mean the people in Florence should feel pretty good about this notion that uh, – of an idea yes. and a government and a nation that is a nation of laws more than of men that in fact can survive the, the worst possibilities. Yeah, and, and, and there was a, a meeting of what was described as the working classes of Wigan in, in England, later made famous by Orwell's The Road to Wigan Pier. And uh, in their resolution, one of the things that they particularly praised Lincoln for was by prevailing that the falsification – they falsified statements that American institutions were a failure and thus gave hope to people in England and elsewhere uh, broadening the suffrage of democracy – and of Republican government with it, most monarchs sort of figureheads. Um, so, Matt, let's get Tanner uh, and Jacob up to the microphone, and maybe you want to set this up, what we're about to hear here. All right. So uh, we know that uh, Lincoln is, is shot at Ford's Theater. Booth has planned this entire thing ahead. He's very familiar with the theater. Uh, he has acted there on many, many occasions. He, he plans everything ahead of time. He goes into the, the box where Lincoln is going to be and puts a music stand in there on the floor so that he can walk in and then bar the door from behind. He walks up behind Lincoln and levels a forty-four caliber Derringer uh, to the back of his head and shoots him behind the left ear. And Lincoln slumps forward and then Booth leaps from the stage uh, down onto the the floor and strides across uh, you know his greatest moment in acting and and announces sic semper tyrannis the south is avenged which is the state motto of virginia uh, thus to all tyrants uh, and link and booth certainly considers lincoln to be a tyrant and so uh, then uh, what happens? They have to take Lincoln out of there. They ultimately get him to the Peterson house across the street and lay his body there. And uh, messengers are sent out to notify Secretary of War Edwin Stanton of what has happened. And so this is the scene that will uh, really uh, open the show this so evening. We've got Tanner Holzell as the soldier, I think, and Jacob Cohen as Stanton. Secretary Stanton. President Lincoln has been shot and Secretary of State Seward and his son Frederick have been assassinated. 
Damn the rebels. This is their work. Send soldiers to all of the cabinet members' homes and to Vice President Johnson's hotel. This may be a larger plot. Send telegrams to all officers in the region and put the army on alert for a possible rebel attack. Find General Grant and get him back to Washington. Close all entry points into the city. No one is to enter or exit Washington. I must get to the telegraph office. Last evening, about 10.30 p.m. at Ford's Theater, the president, while sitting in his private box with Mrs. Lincoln, Miss Harris, and Major Rathburn, was shot by an assassin who suddenly entered the box and approached behind the president. The assassin then leaped upon the stage, brandishing a large dagger or knife, and made his escape in the rear of the theater. The pistol ball entered the back of the president's head and penetrated nearly through the head. The wound is mortal. The president has been insensible ever since it was inflicted and is now dying. Um, so thanks. Thank you, actors. Um, you know, uh, the, here's, the, here's an oddity here, Matt Warshower, which is that uh, there are – first of all, Stanton kind of was the Al Haig of that moment, right? I mean he kind of stepped forward initially and was kind of took charge of oh, things. Oh, he took complete charge. Yeah. So um, – and then one of the oddities here is that um, you know he talks uh, about the possibility of a plot. There have been since then all these various uh, theories about you know much larger conspiracies, and one of them involves him. There was a guy, his name was I think Otto Eisenschimmel, who, who wrote this book that had a certain amount of currency. I think in the first half of the 20th century, I mean you know it wasn't accepted as canon, but but people read it, and he actually thought Stanton might have been involved in this plot somehow. Yeah, that's true, and there's also book that came out by a guy named uh, Finnis Bates in 1907, Escape and Suicide of John Wilkes Booth, in which he argued that uh, Booth wasn't really the man who was killed at Garrett's farm uh, by the cavalry, but that it was somebody who looked like him and that Booth had escaped out to the West. And I mean, these myths and conspiracy ideas carry on. America loves its conspiracies. Ron, is that just it? Just that in the, is, is in the absence of an absolutely ironclad narrative and maybe there can never be such a thing. People just they, – they project what they want. I, I think so and, and, and in addition to this being laid at the, the feet of Stanton and, and widely believed for a good chunk of the, the 20th century mm-hmm. I think, um, in addition to it being laid at the feet of the head of the National Detective Service, Lafayette Baker, go back a little way and it was laid at the foot of the pope. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were, there were a number of people who wrote in the, the late 19th, very early 20th century that this was all a Jesuit plot. Right. And one right-wing, uh, in religious sense, right-wing uh, uh, publication when Kennedy was going for, for elections of the first Catholic for president, they actually re- re-ran some of this stuff oh, yeah. uh, to try to discredit him wow. <laughs> and Catholics in general. Yeah. Well, I do <laughs> so, have to say I, I did my, my doctoral work at a Jesuit institution, St. Louis University, and I do happen to know that Jesuits are responsible for everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so. Good and bad. Okay. Um, well, you know, and these things happen when these things get going. Of course, then there's sort of the confirmation bias detail. Yeah. So one of the – so we could say that the that if there was a detectable or a detected conspiracy, there were eight conspirators plus Booth plus one guy who I think was found in either in Rome or in the Vatican, well, right? That, yes. Yeah. That was Mary Surratt's son. John. Yeah, yeah. yeah John Surratt. Yeah. And, and certainly, you know, you, you, in a way, it's not altogether unlike – um, the Kennedy assassination, where there's still a great deal of controversy, and people who think it wasn't what the Warren Commission said it was sometimes have reasonable arguments to make. Other times, you know, you get things like people who, um, and a large number of people believe this right after 9 11, 
that, that the towers couldn't have come down under the impact of those jets, that the Bush administration had to pack explosives in the walls of the Twin Towers so when the planes hit, it would be strong enough. There was some physicist on the West Coast who did some calculations. And at one point I read in the New York Times, 43 percent of those um, who were interviewed or polled said yes the Bush administration was involved in bringing down the, the right. Twin Towers. Actually, yeah, we've done other shows about Have that. Have you done we, that? We, I mean, it's, we've, it's we've crazy. Done, we've I, done shows with I don't believe the Bush administration was competent enough to pull that off. Yeah, well, it's, you may um, have a good point It's a whole, whole other show here, a whole <laughs> other show. So let's – I mean we do know though – I don't think anybody – that maybe we can talk about maybe – ultimately one or two of the people who were arrested uh, in, in connection with this conspiracy. But basically, uh, Booth, first of all, well, we should say, Matt, Booth is at large for like, what, 12 or 13 days? He, he manages yeah. to escape for 12 days and 12 is days. on the run. And yeah. in actuality, you know, when he leaps from the stage, and, and there's a little bit of debate on this, and when he leaps from the stage, he gets his boot caught on one of the treasury flag bunting that is overhanging the, the box. And in fact, one of those pieces of bunting is right here in Hartford, right down the road at the Connecticut Historical Society, which is in itself really fascinating. But uh, Booth breaks his leg. He breaks his fibula when he jumps down. And so this really uh, messes up his escape. Now, Michael Kaufman has argued in his book, American Brutus, that Booth actually broke his leg when his horse fell during the escape. But either way, it happened. Um, it forces Booth to slow down and to go into hiding. And this, in a way, I think prolongs his ability to to uh, escape his pursuers because he just has to sit tight. But when he is in this pine thicket in Maryland trying to you know, let the cavalry you know, roam about, run after him, he is absolutely thirsty for news of the of what has happened. He wants to read the newspapers and one of the Confederates who's helping him is bringing him food. Uh, David Harold is one of the conspirators who is with him in the field and they're bringing newspapers and Booth is outraged that the newspapers are not covering what his real views of the assassination were. Well, more than that, he's expecting to be in particularly in these newspapers down in the Maryland, Virginia area you know, regarded somewhat heroically yes, in a way that he's not. Yeah. And they're just not reporting that at all. So um, ultimately we have eight uh, – well, well, Booth, uh, of course, dies. Uh, then we have eight more arrested, half of them executed. Is that right? Yeah. yeah four yeah. of them are executed. Um, and, and, um, and, and I don't know. To your way of thinking, I'll ask each of you this, but is, is that it? Is that really kind of the limit of whatever this, whatever this gang was – um, do we now know all their names and are there, including Booth's, 10 names? Yes, I, I think we do. Uh, yeah, except for John Surratt who yeah. escaped. He was in Canada, escaped to Europe, actually mm. spent some time in the Papal Guard, which of course fed into the, the Catholic interpretation, so to speak. But you know, Surratt was, was, was brought back uh, and tried in a civil court, as opposed mm. for a military con- commission in 1867, and he was acquitted. Yeah, or it was, was a mistrial or something like that. Well, yeah, yeah he was not convicted. Yeah, I believe you're not, right. It was convicted. a mistrial. Yeah, yeah I mean, and, the they, and they never retried him. And yeah. the, the interesting thing about Mary Surratt is if you go back and, you know, uh, Robert Frederick did a film on this, mm-hmm. uh, The Conspirator. And the, the way that the military commission works, I think, uh, in some ways, was she involved in some sort of conspiracy against Lincoln, potentially? Yes, I think that's true. Was she involved in the actual assassination? I think not at all. 
uh, and she's railroaded a bit by this military commission and ends up being the first uh, woman ever to be executed by the federal government. Yeah. The uh, there is a, a whole group of people known as Boothies yes. uh, who are just you know they are. I mean, Ron was talking about the nine eleven truthers. There, the, the I, I sense that the Boothies are a little bit more a motley agglomeration of either people who think that Booth didn't actually do it or people who think that maybe Booth deserves a more sympathetic interpretation if he did do it or people who believe some who are just fascinated by by Booth even though they have no sympathy for his cause and they know he did it. There's like, but there's a whole bunch of them. They have conventions. They go to the Surratt house and one of the things that I, I was reading today is that there's a bus ride that you can take yeah. where you cover – I think Kaufman, the author you talked about, has been known to conduct these uh, bus yeah, tours. Yeah. yeah, that's right. It's a 12-hour bus ride where you cover all of the ground that Booth covered while he was escaping authorities. Yeah. I mean like a 12-hour bus ride is sort of something we mostly try to avoid in our lives. Uh, this is true. Well, and I follow that by saying that next week I am – You're going uh, on it. I, I'm going on – I'm not going on that one. But I am taking a group of people from Connecticut. We've done this every year of the commemoration. Uh, we've gone to different places. But next week we are going down to Washington, D.C. And we're not going to follow Booth's route. But we're going to Ford's Theater. We're going to the Peterson House. We're mm-hmm. going to the Capitol. We just found out last week that we got permission to go to the White House. So we're gonna we're gonna hang out with with Barack and um, and talk Boothyisms. Um, yeah, no. If you're going to recreate the Ruth, there's Ruth. There's all this horrible stuff you have to do. Like I think at one point he and Harold got in a boat and tried to get across the Potomac and kept yeah. kind of getting lost in the dark and then winding up on the shore they started out from. Yeah, that's so right. Yeah. It's a much longer, you know, it's more than twelve hours ultimately. All right, we're going to take a quick break here. Come back, talk a little bit about. Well, I do want to talk about the history that wasn't. You know what what didn't happen because President Lincoln was killed. There have been efforts to clear the name of the doctor who treated Booth's broken leg. Unfortunately, his name is Mud. Today's show is produced by Tucker Ives and me, Kyone Wolf. Our intern is Anna Novak. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and Katie Talarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Johnny Depp. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff acting out Civil War scenes with gingerbread men, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, what's it like to be a movie critic? David Edelstein and Colin in deep conversation. Now, back to the show. Yeah, that's uh, tomorrow's show is uh, me and David. Uh, we are. Um, this is a conversation we did last week in front of a live audience at Watkins in School. So I, I know what it's like, and it's it's an interesting conversation, uh, and, and one that I think only David and I could have. Uh, I also want to say that uh, on Thursday. Uh, everything we're sort of working in advance with a lot of stuff this week. I don't know exactly how that happened, but on Thursday we'll be running a show that we recorded in New Haven yesterday, and it, it kind of in a way is a weird sort of bookend to the show we're doing today, in the sense that it's going to be the story of 1970 uh, and May Day, uh, the events of May Day in New Haven. Uh, we've got uh, a bunch of people uh, t- uh, together who remember it uh, and who have written about it, and it's the story. This is the story of the Bobby Seal, uh, Erica Huggins trial, uh, and the fact that New Haven. And almost tipped into complete chaos. Uh, and it's an amazing story. The conversation we had yesterday is really fun. So that should be a Thursday show if, 
the good Lord is willing and the creek doesn't rise. Um, so uh, right now we're talking to Matt Warshower and Ron Spencer. We should say that Matt's uh, production, Assassination, the story of a president's murder and a nation's heartbreak will be tonight at the Hoffman Auditorium at the University of St. Joseph in West Hartford. We've been lucky to have these four young men here with us who are going to be part of that tonight at 730. For more information about the event itself, WNPR.org. So, you know, this is sort of, I mean, speculative history is an easily discreditable uh, notion, uh, uh, but I, we want to do it anyway. Uh, so, so I mean, you know, um, Ron, I'll start with you. I mean, so here we are at this, as I said before, it couldn't have been a more fraught moment. The war is over. Reconstruction's about to begin. You've got an entire population of newly emancipated people. You've got another population of really disgruntled uh, Confederates uh, who are somehow to be eased back into the republic. Um, is, is, first of all, is there any way that Andrew Johnson is the right man for this task? Does, can he bring anything to the job that, that, that Lincoln wouldn't have brought? I, I, I don't think so. Um, it seems to me that, that what made Reconstruction so controversial and um, has given it sometimes a bad press, sometimes a good press, is that uh, the Republican majority in Congress broke with the president, that is Andrew Johnson. And it did so because he was, in effect, coddling the South as it came back in uh, to the Union. We can't know for certain, but I would bet you my IRA, modest though it is in size, that um, if Lincoln had remained president, that kind of break wouldn't have happened. He was too good a politician. He was too flexible. Uh, and uh, I think also that, that you know Johnson was a, an absolutely – died in the wool, negrophobe, racist. Lincoln, though not a modern-day egalitarian as we understand that term, was, I think, much more receptive to, say, black voting Mm -hmm. at the end of the war than he was at the beginning of the war. And in his last speech on the the, uh, 11th of of, uh, uh, April, he had actually said that he favored giving the vote to the very intelligent blacks, by which he really only meant those who were literate, and to those who served our cause as soldiers, whether they were literate or not. And of course, Booth was in the audience and said, at a minimum, that's the last speech he'll give. Now, there's also, there were reports which are controversial, and I'm not endorsing them, but, but some people say that he also said that, that is the endorsement of black suffrage, uh, represents Negro citizenship, although he used a rather harsher N-word, mm-hmm. and then added, I'll put him through in the sense of I'll run him through. Whether he said that, he was at least – some people think he said that. So in that sense, it seems to me that although there were, were real differences between the radical Republicans in the Congress and Lincoln, they had worked out differences over the course of the war and I think they would have worked out differences over the course of Reconstruction, uh, whereas Johnson and they broke and, well – the rest is history, as the saying goes. Um, you know, uh, before we come back to that, Matt, I just one thing that we haven't said is 
uh, speaking of alternative histories, what did Booth think was going to happen? You know, we know that at one point earlier on, he was talking really more in terms of kidnapping and maybe not just kidnapping Lincoln, but kidnapping a, a bunch of leaders and maybe doing prisoner swaps and stuff like that. And obviously at the end of the war, that became kind of a moot point. So, you know, we, we heard uh, Jacob read that letter. Uh, no, it wasn't Jacob. Whoever the, ben. ben. We heard Ben, ben. read the Ben. Uh, we heard Ben read that letter. But I mean, what did what did Booth think was did he think the South was going to rise up somehow yeah. as a result of this? Yeah, yeah. he did. Uh, Booth first wanted to to uh, kidnap Lincoln, and he thought that he had an easy way to do it because Lincoln would r- ride out the three miles to the soldier home, uh, the Lincoln what is called the Lincoln Cottage today, and he was going to whisk Lincoln off uh, down into. Uh, to the, the South and, and bring him to Richmond and use him as a bargaining chip to end the war. When that doesn't work out because the war ends suddenly, uh, Booth figures he's going to lop the head off of what he views as the snake. And we talked about how he was going to kill both uh, Lincoln, uh, Vice President Johnson, and Secretary of State Seward. That is the you know that's the progression of you know where the presidency goes. And so he's hoping that this is going to throw the North into disarray. Uh, and that will allow uh, the South to rise up again and reorganize itself. And, you know, I think it's an impossibility because this is a war that is won by attrition. Uh, so, you know, that possibility just doesn't exist. But uh, I think the really fascinating thing in regards to what you asked Ron about, you know, mm-hmm. what might have happened, and there's two, I think, two distinct ways to look at it. One, I completely agree that with everything that Ron said, Lincoln would have handled things very, very differently. And, you know, his he would have had a lot of credit in his side for having ended the war and saved the Union. That would have boded very, very well for him, even among uh, some Democrats, the war Democrats who are Unionists. But there's also another way to look at it, and that is that uh, Americans tend to not really like their second-term presidents very much. Mm-hmm. And so Lincoln may have run into some problems uh, as he continued and he certainly wouldn't have been accorded – he still would have been accorded respect but he would never have achieved the status that he does today because of the martyrdom. But I think there's no question whatsoever that Reconstruction would have gone very, very differently and the history of the United States today as a result would be completely different because you don't want to talk about Ferguson and all these other things. These are legacies of Reconstruction. Um, Ron, you know, just uh, you nodded as a uh, man said the thing about the second term. And uh, another way to look at it is uh, managing a war is an extraordinarily difficult thing. Managing the subsequent peace and reconciliation is also a very difficult thing and requiring a somewhat different set of skills. Um, and, and I mean, it, nobody can ever think that any great favor was done to Abraham Lincoln by assassinating him. But, I mean, in a way, he, he's off the hook for an extraordinarily – it was going to be a really difficult period of history no matter who was president. Sure. The, the, uh, no, no, no denying that. Um, but I still think given his political skills – that he would have gotten through it and as Matt has suggested and I earlier implied, the country would have been a lot better off uh, with him at the helm uh, than with what it got with Johnson and and the Republicans in Congress at one another's throats almost from the beginning. Uh, Matt, we're almost out of time. I want to just uh, press a little bit more about what you said uh, there just the last time, that that things like Ferguson are a legacy of Reconstruction. Are I mean, is is that a fair uh, statement, one that you, you can say with confidence, or are things like Ferguson 
the legacy of a latent racism and uh, kind of a structural racism that we would have no matter what. No, I think I think it's a fair thing to say. I mean, I give I said Ferguson because that's people what people know the most. I mean, I think Ferguson has its own distinct issues about Michael Brown and what he did or mm-hmm. didn't do before that. But in terms of the structural racism, yeah, I, th- I think that it's built in. And and look at what how far the nation has come since the civil rights era. And then you look back and think and consider that between the time, you know, the mid to late 1860s until the 1960s, there is not a single piece of civil rights legislation that has passed. And Jim Crow with Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896 is allowed to establish itself in the United States, uh, you know, and that has – it creates that structural racism. I think that if Lincoln had been at the helm, he would have ameliorated it. He couldn't have done it, done away with it completely. But I think he would have done more certainly than Andrew Johnson did. All right. Um, I don't dare ask another question because uh, we don't have enough time. So uh, Matt Warshower, uh, first of all, thanks for coming in and thanks for tonight's production, Assassination. Come to the, the play. The it's going to be amazing. The story of a president's murder and addition's heartache at the beautiful Hoffman Auditorium. It really is actually a beautiful hall at the University of St. Joseph in West Hartford. That's tonight at 730. Ron Spencer, uh, thanks for being here today and thanks for a Connecticut Yankee in Lincoln's cabinet. Navy Secretary Gideon Wells uh, chronicles the Civil War. Let's see if I can get everybody's name right. Thanks to Jackson Zinn Rothorn uh, and Ben Astrakhan and Tanner Hosell and Jacob Cohen. Did I do it right? I did it right. All right. Uh, you guys were awesome. They will be performing tonight. Uh, and do come back and visit us tomorrow for the David Edelstein conversation. Uh, I, I know wherever I speak this time, it was – you may have heard about our show before, but I don't think you've heard quite this version of David. We talk about different things and about what it's like to be a film critic and go to the screenings and all that kind of stuff, the actual work of being a film critic and how you become that. And then on, on Thursday, we it really is – it's the perfect modern-day antecedent to what we're talking about right now, the, the clash – uh, that happened in New Haven in 1970. It's a story that you, I'm willing to bet, have not been told, at least not in full. You'll even, talk, you'll even hear from a man who was just out there on the green watching and got tear gassed. Anyway, uh, that's all coming up this week. Thanks to Tucker Ryers for putting together this show. Kion Wolf for being on the board. I can't see who is handling the phones here, but uh, and we'll be back tomorrow. These are traitors, Star lost, and if his heart.